This episode is brought to you by the new comedy web series, Howard's Hot Roommate. What if your new roommate was the woman of your dreams? Would you be cool? Not Howard. Would you be tough? Not Howard. Would you be sexy? Definitely not Howard. Howard's Hot Roommate stars Timothy Horner, Stephanie Maloof, and most importantly, was written and created by Earwolf's very own John Cohen. John Cohen is about 13 feet away from me right now on the other side of this studio wall. Hilarious guy. I've watched the series. It's great fun. You can check out all six episodes of Howard's Misadventures now at meethoward.com. That's meethoward.com. Welcome to episode 49 of Reading Aloud. Thank you so much for joining me this week. My name is Nate Cordry. I host the show. Uh, I'm an actor by trade, but when it comes to books and writing and reading, I am an avid hobbyist. Uh, the show has been described as a literary variety show of sorts, taking the everyman's perspective, and that description is apt. Thank you, IndieWire. It's an interview show, first and foremost, and I've been able to talk to some incredibly compelling people. Um, people like Jerry Stahl and Gloria Steinem and John Cryer and Amy Mann. It, it's also a reading series where some of the best actors and comedians in town read short stories and uh, essays and excerpts from novels and long-form articles. People like Aya Cash and Anna Faris, Baron Vaughn, um, Jason Manzukis, Megan Amram, Paul Shear. Uh, is that enough for a podcast? No, it's not. We can always do more. Monthly book clubs. Yeah, we've got it. We've read Fitzgerald, Franzen, Stephen King, Toni Morrison, and everyone in between. I, I give my listeners a month to read the book, then the ability to share their thoughts with us, which you can do via email at readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com, which brings us to this month's choice. We just finished The Great Gatsby. And Sam. Hey. Sam, I've never had a member of the book club get so many positive responses on Instagram and Twitter. Oh, that was nice. People love you. Oh, I'm glad. That was a lot of fun. Like several folks said, more Sam heart emoji, heart emoji, heart emoji. Cat Wait, with, I got emojis? Yeah, you got like several Instagram emojis. That's literally the highest award you can get on the internet. Yeah. You got several. Whoa. Um, this month's choice, we're going to stick with The Lost Generation because Gatsby was so much fun. Uh, Ernest Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms. It's about war. Mm -hmm. It's about love. And it's about ambulances. Are there pictures? No. Okay. So Sam is now a member of the book club um, in perpetuity. And if you want to read the book and join us, great. Oh, I'm in. If you're too busy month to month, it's cool. But please join us any time you want. I accept. Thank you so much. Um, to you listeners, go pick up A Farewell to Arms at your local independent bookstore. Get a reading. And then send us your thoughts. And we have a very substantial book club group for this one. Uh, we have some f fantastic writers, playwrights, actors. Rachel Axler, uh, Shelby Farrow, friends of the show and playwrights. Dan O'Brien, Crispin Wattell, and my dear brother Robert will be joining us. So get in your thoughts before Wednesday, March 16th. 
that's the record date. And we'd love to have you join us. Um, but enough about that. Let's get to the meat of today's show, shall we? I was very lucky to have my guest this week come into the studio and chat about her career as a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. We first connected two years ago. She was working the philanthropy and charitable giving beat at the Boston Globe. And there's this nonprofit profit I work with in Boston on occasion called Needs, N-E-A-D-S. And they train uh, service dogs for basically anyone who needs one. Um, they do amazing work. And I was trying to raise some cash and some awareness for the organization. And Sasha reached out to me about it. And I recognized her name immediately from this script I had read a few months previous called Spotlight about the investigative journalists at the Globe who uncovered uh, Cardinal Law's cover-up of the, the massive priest abuse scandal. And I, I couldn't wait to see the movie, and I asked her if she was the Sasha Pfeiffer, and she told me she, she in fact was. And we started a correspondence, and then the movie came out and was nominated for every award under the sun. And she's, she's been out to LA um, a bunch of times this fall to help promote the movie and attend screenings and Q&As and meet and greets and everything else that a studio sets up to help promote a movie. Um, and she was kind enough to hop into an Uber and head east to our studios here in Hollywood. We had a great combo, And, um, and she's someone I really admire. So, so here it is, just in time for the Oscars. Uh, where Rachel McAdams has been nominated for Best Supporting Actress for her portrayal of my guest today, Sasha Pfeiffer in Spotlight. Here she is. Here's Sasha. I'll go as fast as I can because dinner reservations are very important to me. (laughs) (laughs) My guest today is a journalist who currently works for the Boston Globe, where she covers charitable giving, nonprofits, and philanthropy. Before that, she worked in public radio in Boston at WBUR, serving as a local host for All Things Considered on Points Radio Boston and Here and Now. Before that, she won a Pulitzer Prize for her reporting as a member of the Spotlight team, who uncovered the systemic and widespread sexual abuse of children at the hands of countless members of the Catholic Church in Boston. The movie Spotlight, which is a stunning account of the reporting of this story, has been nominated for six Academy Awards. Uh, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Editing, Best Supporting Actor, and perhaps most importantly, Best Supporting Actress for Rachel McAdams, who is portraying uh, my guest in the film, Sasha Pfeiffer. Welcome to Reading Aloud. Thanks, Nate. Good to be here. If I could just, um, I'd love to get right to the heart of the matter. Um, Has Rachel McAdams asked about me? I've sensed that she's wanted to, but she's held back. That's okay. Exactly. That's see, I I've never met her, but I get the same feeling. Yeah. Just by seeing her on the television, I feel like I feel like I might be on her mind. She's very private, but I, sure. I think I've detected that possibly. Yes. God. Well, you're you're a reporter. Your business <laughs> is detecting things in exactly. people. I'm glad we got that out of the way. You're here in LA for um, award shows and junkets and interviews and panel discussions. Uh-huh. Um, have you spent much time in L.A. before before this? I hadn't been in L.A. for about 15 years before this fall, and suddenly I've been out several times because we're here so often for movie-related events, like you said, moderating panels and yeah. going to dinners and uh, just a lot of things related to the movie. Is L.A. as you um, expected it to be? You know, L.A. gets a bad reputation, right? And But the more time you spend here, you really find that there's some wonderful, wonderful parts of it. Yeah. Yes, you have to deal with... 
outrageous traffic and it's hard to get places and it's a, a Hollywood obsessed and not a very good way, but there are great things about LA. Tell me one thing that's great to remind me that I live in a city that's worth living in. I just discovered Runyon Canyon this week and I yeah. think that is like the greatest <laughs> sort of outdoor gift to an urban area. Absolutely. It was fantastic. There's That's one of, that's, I guess that's probably number one or number two in the list of why LA is a wonderful place to live is that you get to, you're in that horrible traffic and stuck in your car, but then you just look up and there is green. Exactly. There are mountain ranges. And I thought that to get to Runyon Canyon, you had to drive far into the wilderness to this right. remote area. And it's, yeah. it's basically in a residential neighborhood. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. It's steps from like Sunset Boulevard, uh -huh. basically. Uh -huh. Yeah. That place is, um, it's sort of like a, uh, if you want to see some like D-level kind of television supporting actor, like you'll find them <laughs> in short shorts walking Runyon. Did you see anyone from like The Closer? Well, I <laughs> did see many people with baseball hats and sunglasses. Sure. That either was designed to make you wonder who they were. Exactly. Or they actually were somebody who were just trying to enjoy life nope. and not be stalked. Just some guy named Todd, I'm guessing. <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know. Um, what has most jumped out at you about the experience of promoting this movie? I'm assuming this is uncharted territory for you. And yet you have this set of skills as a journalist and as like a thoughtful person to be hyper aware of your surroundings. This is a big question, but um, what has all of this been like experiencing this, this promotion? People keep asking me if it's fun, and I say it's actually more just fascinating, right? I feel like yeah. we're – do you remember – this is a strange analogy, but do you remember in the Iraq War, reporters got embedded, right? Yeah. And they put them in tanks. I feel like we've been embedded, but we're embedded We're embedded in Hollywood, like we're yes. embedded in Beverly Hills. Yeah, yeah. And as reporters, we're trained to be observers, and we've kind of – we're able to stand on the sidelines and actually get a pretty close front row seat of this crazy world. Yeah. And it's, it's very, very, very strange. Have you had conversations just amongst the team of you from – from the Boston Globe, separate from the actors and producers, where you've gone, what the fuck is going on? Hope. Did we you have just see what just happened. We have those room? conversations all the time. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give you one example. So, um, the other night I did a panel with a bunch of the actors, and Rachel was there, and we're in the same hotel, so we took a car to the event. Mm -hmm. And as we were leaving the event in the same car, people began to surround the car as we were leaving the garage, like fans. And the car had tinted windows, but as the car progressed to the street, they continued to circle the car calling out Rachel, Rachel through the window. And that these are grownups. These are not like teenagers. These are like people in their 50s and 60s with cameras, with yeah. you know high-resolution lenses. And I, I just – it amazes me that people – and, you know, a lot of these actors got into this business because they truly love acting. They went to theater school. They've been on Broadway. And suddenly they're very successful at their jobs. They become celebrities almost at the expense of their personal lives. And most other professions, you can you can be very accomplished and still go home and have an, a wonderful personal life and not have people camped out on your front steps with, with cameras. And that's been a very strange thing to realize. It takes uh, a really – it takes a special kind of personality to be able to handle that kind of pressure too. Because I don't think they – they don't teach that in drama school. No. How to manage expectations and how to negotiate um, stardom. Uh, no one is prepared for that unless you come from a family of artists, I guess, but, or you you sort of adjacent to it if you have like a partner or a, a friend who has celebrity status, but to have to negotiate that over and over again, I'm sure it's a, it's a pretty steep learning curve. Very. And you know, you, you suddenly, it's much more difficult to figure out who are your friends because everyone wants to be your friends. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's very, very easy to see why people lose their way in that world. And that's why I have even more respect for the ones who 
try to stay as grounded as they can, are still close to their families. It's, it's, and I believe that for the most part, our cast is exactly like that. Good, solid, grounded, wonderful people. John yeah. Slattery, Mark Ruffalo, Rachel McAdams. These are, these are great people. Brian Darcy James, Broadway actor. Wonderful people. Yeah, people who are grounded and yeah. have reasonable. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, have you te- taken anything away from this experience, specifically having to do uh, countless interviews and promotions, and thank you, by the way, for doing this interview, um, that you'll use in your own reporting and interviewing? I mean, it must be strange to be on the other side, because usually you're the one that's asking as opposed to answering. Yes, it's very strange. It's very uncomfortable, and I think In what way? Well, I don't, I'd rather not be asked questions, right? How come? I, it feels kind of invasive sometimes. It's very personal. Uh-huh. And yet I've realized I do that to people all the time. <laughs> Your business is being invasive. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and now I'm experiencing what it's like to be grilled. Yeah. And, you know, probably yeah. it's good for me to have realized that. Yeah, right. It's a taste of our own medicine. I think that probably will make us better reporters and interviewers. Another thing that's been interesting is when you do these press junkets, you get put in a room sometimes in a hotel and they just cycle reporters in, TV cameras in four, five, eight, ten minute increments. You basically get asked the same questions over and over again. I'm and it sure. can be very hard to stay fresh and energetic and engaged. And you understand why the celebrities get snappish after a while. Uh, but it's made me as a reporter and an interviewer want to try even more to make sure that the questions I ask are very interesting for the people being interviewed so they can try to enjoy the experience. That's amazing. I feel like that's the best possible turnout. Yeah. To make sure that you have just a little bit more awareness of what it means to be sitting in that chair for God knows how many hours asking, answering the same questions over and over and over. Thankfully, the content of the questions here have depth and weight and there's... um, there's a sensitivity to these con- to these questions as opposed to if like you know like guardi- like uh, the Avengers. Um, I'm assuming those questions like aren't as thoughtful because the content isn't right. Is just simple and base. This is a movie that has a lot of issues that leave people talking and yes. leave their minds teeming. Yes. So you get better questions than you know, people asking about their hairstyles. Yeah. How long were you in makeup for? (laughs) Five hours. Next question. God damn it. Exactly. Yes, I'm wearing, yeah. You know, when I was, when I worked in public radio uh, at WBUR, the member station in Boston uh, for about seven years, you have producers who often help you do research and help you develop questions. And if you're a good host, you're also developing your own questions. But once in a while, I would get a list of producer questions. And the first question would be like, you know, how did you get the idea for your book? And I think... This person has answered that question, yeah. uh, you know, in infinite amount of times. Yeah. And it is important. You have to know that in the interview. But I feel like maybe we just try to weave it into the intro and spare that guest having yeah. to answer that question one more time. And you're never going to get a clever response. You're never going to get an honest, like, emotional response because it's just been drained from them. And your audience will, will hear that. Yeah. Well, I went for a hike with my husband, and it just dawned on me. Like, I've said this a thousand times, and the audience is like, oh, this poor fucking bastard has to answer this question <laughs> over and over and over again. Yeah. And they can feel that. A sensitive audience understands when the interview subject is, like, bored. Exactly. Which is happening right now. Um, <laughs> I'm guessing the studio, this is sort of to piggyback on that last question, the studio must have been really jazzed to have you guys out here promoting the story because... Like with so often, like with their biopics and true life stories, they have the people that the story is based on, but you don't know what you're going to get with them. But with all the reporters from the Globe, they have this built-in 
team of like award-winning journalists who know how to hold themselves, who know how to talk in front of a microphone, they must be, I'm assuming you guys are getting more requests to do promotion than the average person in a biopic would because you're thoughtful and smart and you know how to answer questions. That's probably true. Although since I knew nothing about the movie yeah. industry before this, but I, I do think, for example, that, you know, we are more available than the actors. Their schedules are crazy. We right. are cheaper, right? If you give us a little extra leg room in the airplane and Absolutely. <laughs> we're, that's, we're just so excited, you know, we're just, <laughs> and, and you know, we, we like to talk about this issue. I mean, there's important things to talk about. We love how the story, this movie tells people about the importance of investigative journalism. Right? Yeah. It reminds people about the tragedy of clergy sex abuse and emboldens people to come forward. So there are many issues that we feel really passionate about that we can, you know, we can evangelize about genuinely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And again, the audience will hear that. They'll hear that. It, it just resonates in a yeah. very simple way. Um, did you grow up, I know you grew up in Columbus. Columbus, Ohio. Um, did you grow up at being active in a church yourself or did your family go to church? I have a Catholic mother and a Protestant father. Okay. And this is sort of a sign of the times, but back when they got married in the late 60s, my Protestant grandmother was not happy that her son was marrying a Catholic girl. Right. right? Today, I think it seems silly that we would care. Mm -hmm. They cared in the yeah. late 60s. So to make my Protestant grandmother happy, my brother and sister and I went to church twice all the way until we left for college. We went to a Catholic mass and then we went to a congregational service and that was just to sort of keep the peace in the family. So on, I got a lot of religion growing up. On different days or the same? Same day. 9.30 mass Sunday morning and then 11 a.m. service Sunday morning. Wow. <laughs> Hold on. Wow. Yep. Holy moly. Yep. How until you were 17? Until we left for college. Did you not like at what age were you like, mom, this is insane. Like we're getting the same news just from we're, we're watching the same show. Well, but, the, the truth is it yeah. was actually a fascinatingly different view, right? Mm. Because this was, you know, 70s, 80s. The, a lot of Catholic masses had cry rooms and guitar groups. It was very kind of groovy in 70s. And when you go to a congregational service, it's like a pulpit and a minister and yeah. God. Yeah, so yeah. we got very different perspectives of, of religion. And I really value that in retrospect. At the yeah. time, I couldn't stand it. I value right. it now. What's a cry room? <laughs> a cry room. Because I want to invest in one. <laughs> a cry room is a insulated, sound-insulated room that has glass where you can take your crying kids in there and still watch gotcha. and hear the homily. Okay. Mm -hmm. I thought it would be like for funerals. If you were wailing, you just went to the cry room. Nope. It's where you take uh, the, the the wailing kids. Wow. This is in the Catholic Church? Catholic or the... Church. Mm -hmm. Wow. I had no idea. Yep. Just yep. part of the infrastructure. Every Catholic Church has a cry room. I don't room. know if they all do, but ours did. The good ones did. did. The good ones did. Or the ones that were in neighborhoods with a lot of young kids, I guess. Exactly. Not so much like in like in Florida when there's just a lot of older folks The going. seniors, exactly. Yeah, they have a different room, exactly. perhaps. Um, I want to talk about the actual, the tangible reporting of this story. And, and, and I wonder how interviewing an abuse victim differs from interviewing a typical person. And... And and how you approach that interview as opposed to talking to someone about um, whatever, anything. Is there? Yeah, I think there is a difference. And part of it is that when you're interviewing an abuse victim, particularly as something as traumatic as clergy sex abuse, because the person who did the abuse was such an exalted person, you're asking them to unearth incredibly traumatic things. Right. And I think you have a responsibility to not just listen and say, thank you, and then vanish out of their life. With other people, you can probably interview them, say it was great to meet you, and they don't need to hear from you again. 
And for me, I made sure that for the people that I talked to who I really who really opened up to me, I would check back in. Are you okay? Make sure you're make sure you have a support system. Yeah. You know, these are things people often hadn't shared for decades, hadn't told their wives if in the case of men. So I, again, I think that we need to realize it's like we come into their life, drop a bomb, and when you do that, I think you have a responsibility to be a caretaker of that person in a sense. Is that something you just assumed on your own or did the team before you went out and had these interviews, did you have a conversation like, we, we got to treat this stuff with kick gloves because this is, this, is, uh, this is serious work? I think we just sensed it along the way. Sure. And I think we all, uh, you know, we all realized that there was that responsibility. I guess if you're an empathetic person, you'd, you'd understand I that. I think so, yeah. Um, did you go into these interviews assuming they'd, like your subjects would reveal everything because they knew that it was like long-term in their best interest to get it out? Or did you assume this was going to be real difficult and fraught and dangerous? More the latter. Yeah. And I think in many cases we had to really draw people out. And yeah. there's actually a scene in the movie where where my character, Rachel McAdams, is talking to this uh, victim, this clergy sex abuse victim, a young gay man, and he basically just says, I, I got molested. And, you know, she pauses and says that the language is going to be very important because if you just say molest, that can mean a whole universe of things. Mm-hmm. It could mean a kid who had a priest slip his hand down his pants, right? Mm-hmm. Two, two kids who got raped. I mean, right. this is what really happened. Yeah. So when we interviewed people, we often had to sort of gently say to them, we need more detail, but we always explained why. Because depending on what that detail was, some priests went to prison, right? So we were very delicate and careful with people. We were also careful when we wrote not to be salacious because we didn't want to be accused of, of being sensational. But it was also important to know details. How do you find that line? And who determines that line? Your editor? Is that you? It's part judgment of the writer and the reporter. It's also partly a good editor. Yes, both. I mean, what like where? what is too much? Just if it gets too descriptive? Because yeah. you alienate the, the reader? We also talked a lot about removing adjectives, because in a way, adjectives are subjective. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah, yeah, So yeah. if you just sort of say the facts, then I think that can be powerful in itself, depending on what the facts are. For example, in the movie, when this victim I'm talking to finally goes into more detail, he talked about – there had been this uh, so-called street priest in Boston. He had long hair. He didn't wear a Roman collar. He lived in an apartment in Boston's Back Bay. And I thought he was one of the most insidious – abusive priests because he created this what he called ministry for alienated youth. So he basically had access to all these adolescent boys who were very confused about their sexuality. In a lot of cases, he ended up sexually abusing them. But this victim described going to the priest's apartment and there was this mobile that had words like bisexual, homosexual, transsexual. And it was a way to ease him into a conversation which was not going to have a a good ending. But that, I don't have to add any adjectives. That's a powerful visual. Holy moly. Yeah. Um, how how quickly into the reporting did you begin to realize that you guys may be sitting on a volcano? Pretty quickly. Yeah. Because at first we thought, you know, maybe, maybe there are a half dozen priests in the archdiocese that did this. And suddenly we thought, could there really be 13? And oh my God, are there 20? Yeah. By the time we finally published, we knew there were at least 70 priests in the Boston Archdiocese credibly accused of abuse. We now know there were hundreds. Yeah. How quickly did that come? It was days? It was weeks? It took us four months to get to the point when we could confidently say there had been at least 70 priests. And then in the months after that, the number just began exploding upwards. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, you, <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming you've seen this face a lot, listening to answer questions and people just saying, good Lord, and shaking their heads. I'm yes. assuming that's the response that's you've been getting. That's a pretty common response. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> let's go back to January 5th, uh, 2002, which is the night before the story was printed on the <laughs> front page above the fold in the Sunday Globe. Uh, what are you doing that night? 
I think, if I'm if I'm remembering back 15 years or so correctly, 14 years, yeah. we were, you know, in editing, full editing mode, making sure every fact was right, every detail was correct, going over that story with a fine-tooth comb. What time, like when did the, literally, like did the presses run? I think the last time you can make any change is, a, is about a half hour after midnight. I mean, really, okay. stories should be done by early evening. And this was obviously a big story that had been in the writing and editing stage for a long time. But you have until a little after midnight. If you catch anything that needs to be changed, that's yeah. your drop-dead deadline. And what um, what time did, it, did, did the finished print, I'm not sure what the technical term is, that it actually gets sent to the press? It gets run off the presses somewhere around 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. The trucks begin to ship it in the middle of the night, starts arriving yeah. at homes and convenience stores 5, 6 in the morning. Did you get any immediate blowback, like personally, after the story was reported? We worried about maybe protesters or picketers or demonstrators in front of the globe. That never happened. And our theory is that, you know, we we got into the file cabinets of the Boston Archdiocese, and what was in there was pretty horrifying. Yeah. And if we were showing readers the documents. If you're just showing them the documents, it's hard for anyone to blame the messenger. So no one in line at Market Basket said, um, I think what you're doing is wrong, or how dare you... I never got that feedback. I actually was surprised by the opposite, which people seem to feel finally this is being exposed. I mean, Boston is a is a city that, as you know, because you grew up there, loves the church. It's a it's a devoutly Catholic city, especially back then, 50s, 60s, 70s. But yeah. people realized this was wrong, and we, the church has to be held to account. When people ask me about Boston, I, I always the first word that I always go to is parochial. Next word is backwards, but <laughs> parochial is the first word that I go to. And the third one is conservative. Yeah. People assume this is like the bluest state in the world, but ugh, I just it just there's so much um there's so much conservative old money. Anytime I saw like as a kid seeing someone with like a, a Mayflower descendant license plate, I just made up Yeah, you know, we um in, in the spring of two thousand two we wrote a book sort of about the clergy sex abuse and how it unfolded. It was called Betrayal. And there's a chapter in the book called The Decline of Deference. And I loved that chapter title wow. because it talked about how the the deference that had been paid to the church began to erode. Yeah. And by the time we published our stories, people just felt like no more. This was wrong. Yeah. We're yeah. not going to blindly listen and not question yeah. this powerful institution. You know, Enough and is... This is going to sound so cliched, but really this project taught me the importance of questioning authority. When you don't ask questions of powerful institutions, this is what happens. Absolutely. Um, the focus of the first article is um, Gagan, John Gagan, mm -hmm. who um, – had over 130 people come forward to allege abuse. Um, Six parishes, 30 years, continually recycled, and kept abusing even though the church knew he had been accused of abuse before. I, I And I, this is touched on in the movie, but I just see that number, 130, and just you assume because of all the shame that's connected with abuse victims, if, it's, if 130 people talked, you just can't imagine. Imagine how many, how many more multiples didn't. happened to, exactly. Um, he was sent to prison after the article was written and was... Um, and he was murdered in 2003 by his cellmate who was doing a life sentence for the murder of a man who had made unwelcome sexual advances on him. And I wonder if you remember hearing that news and if you were surprised. I remember hearing it and I remember being horrified because I think he was stomped to death. Something yes. really horrific happened. Choked I think, and stomped to death. Exactly. I think his cellmate jammed the door somehow so the guards couldn't get in. Yeah. And, you know, look, however, whatever you think of John Gagan, that is a horrific way for your life to end. Yes. And it was just a tragedy on top of a tragedy. Yeah. Um, there's a scene in the movie that I, I, I'm, I'm assuming is based on fact. Uh, 
you can help me through this. Rachel McAdams shows up on the front porch uh, of a retired priest in Hyde Park or Dorchester. Uh, Malden. 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 Even better. Um, who was an alleged rapist, and he he answers the door. And can can you take it from there about what happens next? Yeah, so as depicted in the movie, I knock on the door because this priest, we had had allegations of abuse made about him. Uh, to us. And I knocked on the door. And in the movie, uh, I say, you've been accused. And he acknowledges it. Uh, but he says, I didn't get pleasure out of it. And I was, I, I know the difference between rape uh, and, and sort of, and other things, because I myself was molested by a priest. Then the sister come and chases him away. And the, the conversation ends. Yeah. Now, in real life, there were two separate interviews done with that priest, one by me on the doorstep, one by my colleague, Steve Kirchin, who got into the priest's living room. That didn't happen until later in January, 2002. The story ends and er, the movie ends in early 2002. Yeah. So this is one case where the director and writer took a little dramatic license because they wanted some priest interaction. They moved that scene in time back by a few weeks. Yeah. And because my colleague wasn't involved yet, the whole scene goes to me. Right? Yeah. But what I remember about talking to him was when you ask someone, did you or did you not molest a child? It should be a clear yes or no. <laughs> yeah. And I got this very confusing, muddy uh, answer, and I, it, it, I just remember it was very alarming. Did, did, you, did your entire brain, just this, the journalist's brain, just explode? Like, oh my God, this is not the response I could have imagined a thousand times out of a thousand and one opportunities. I had talked to another priest, a guy named Father Robert Meffin, about his own allegations, and he had this very you know, twisted rationalization for why he did what he did. And in the case of both Father Paquin and Father Meffin, I just realized these are very troubled men. Some people who've seen that Paquin scene in the movie think he was demented or was senile. I don't think so. Yeah, no. I think right. he was just disturbed. Yeah, yeah, he was a broken human. Yeah. Uh, the biggest question... Um, after, of course, how the fuck could this have happened, seems to be someone of the Catholic faith has has to attempt to reconcile this, that, that the men that they have attached divine power and ultimate trust to for decades, for generations, uh, it's been revealed as a, 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 they're nothing more than... than um, opportunistic rapists and have betrayed the ultimate trust. How, how do any of those people go back inside a Catholic church? That's a really great and interesting question. And I've thought about that a lot because there were many people who just said, never again, I'm done with the church. There were others that tried to reform the church from within. There was a group form called Voice of the Faithful. And they were like, we are going to make the church better. And there were, of course, some people who never left. You know, they just, they love their parish. They love their parish priest. You know, my late grandmother, who's depicted in the movie, and she died maybe seven years ago, I remember after the stories ran, she said to me, we thought the priests were little gods. And I remember thinking, and that's exactly why this happened. Yeah. Because you thought they were gods. You thought they were could do no wrong. And yeah. even if you thought they were doing wrong, you probably weren't going to question them. No. And I think that was the mentality. Little gods. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about your... Talk about switching gears. Let's talk about your current beat, which is wealth and philanthropy. And nonprofits. Nonprofits. And the ways they all intersect and overlap. Yeah. It's essentially about sort of money and the interesting meaningful the interesting ways people try to use money meaningfully. Yeah. So I'm really fascinated by people who uh, come into great wealth. And oftentimes people think they want to be rich. It's the it's the their focus, but then they get rich and they're sort of like, oh, is this it? 
Yeah. I, and their no, family hates them and yeah. it all goes down the tubes. And, you know, you have more than you need. What do you do with it? And if all you choose to do is buy stuff, I'm not so interested in that. If you suddenly want to do something meaningful with your money, I'm fascinated by that. Right. And it's it's difficult to make sure your money is being used meaningfully. I mean, how do, if you write a check to a nonprofit, how do you know it actually does any yeah. good? So my, my beat explores all those issues and I, I love it. How did you find your way to that beat? When I was coming back to the Globe after having been away for seven years, I was talking with the editor Brian McGrory, basically about what would be some of the most interesting things we could cover. And when you cover wealth and philanthropy, you're talking about some of the most interesting people in our community because they are, uh, you know, often technology leaders, business leaders, and they've they've come into wealth and they're influential. And so it was a great segment of society to focus on. Mm. And Boston is not short on those kinds of folks. It is not. Um, Let's transition to books because mm-hmm. this is a podcast about books mm-hmm. and reading. I love, um, I love, by the way, that that's your podcast topic. It's fantastic. Yeah, I like books. Uh-huh. I'm interested in them. Yeah. Um, is it? Uh, well, what genres are you most um, drawn to as a as a reader? You know, I definitely read mostly fiction because I get my nonfiction from newspapers from and magazines. I mean, yeah. I read. You know, I read four papers a day: Boston Globe, Boston Herald, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. I get a lot of nonfiction in my life. Mm. I love fiction. The Patriot Ledger. You don't read the Ledger. <laughs> You know, I delivered the ledger. <laughs> I'm not a faithful ledger reader. Fair enough. Uh, I I occasionally read nonfiction. I read David McCullough has this book out about the Wright brothers that yeah, I read. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. I tend with my fiction to swivel back and forth between contemporary things mm-hmm. and things that I never read from like the oh. 19th century. Oh, we're on the same page. We like I'll, I'll do. Oh, I just recently reread. Great Expectations. When you read that as an adult, it is so different than when you read it as a teenager. I bet. Yeah. You know, totally different lens. Yeah. I recently reread Jane Eyre. Wonderful. Yeah. But then I'll do really, you know, contemporary stuff. Right. And uh, What's and I, the most recent contemporary novel that you read? There is a Boston author named Jennifer Haig, and I just randomly picked up this book she has called Faith. Had no idea that there was actually a clergy sex abuse theme in it. Oh, wow. Told sort of from the perspective of an accused priest, and I was completely riveted. Whoa. I loved that book. Tell with the title again? Faith. Faith. Mm-hmm. Okay. She has another book called The Condition that I read right after that because I was just so kind of excited about Jennifer's work. Okay. Uh, what else? I um, there's, there's a writer named Nelson DeMille who writes these kind of like th- sort of thrillers. They're quick reads. But he's written one called The Lion, which I read on an airplane. It was great. He wrote one called Gold Coast that's this really – it's kind of a, a mystery but also this really interesting cultural commentary. Mm. That was great. Love Wallace Stegner. Love mm. William Styron. Oh yeah. Um, you know, I just uh, and I I uh, I often take this the tea to work that you know the Boston yeah, yeah. subway, and that lets me get through about a book a week, which is just a joy. Oh god, that's great. Yeah, it is great. Oh, that's something I do miss about not having a a train system here. I, when I lived in New York, I was reading more on yeah. the on the train because it's just a wonderful way to pass yeah, the time. Yeah, it's great quiet time. Is there a Boston Globe reporter book club? Not that I know of. Huh. I imagine, well, may, no, not that I know of. You should start one. I should start one. That's yeah. a great idea. Um, do, does every journalism student have to read All the President's Men? <laughs> um, it, it's probably, I mean, it is one of those seminal seminal newspaper stories. Sure is. Uh, it, it couldn't hurt, for sure. Okay. <laughs> I was on a flight um, back from Australia once, and um, Bernstein was sitting to my left, uh-huh. and the Hillary Clinton book had just come out that he wrote about her. This is in 2008, seven or eight, uh, eight, right when she was running for president. And I think it's just called Hillary. And he was sitting there and his great big belly was hanging out. And he had the book with the cover still on it, resting. He was reading his own book, not in private, <laughs> like in the bathtub. He was reading it on an airplane with his 
enormous face on the back cover, like as people were walking past him. That's an interesting psychological study, isn't, isn't that it? wonderful? Uh-huh. Goodness gracious! <laughs> Who was the uh, that he was married to, and they wrote the uh, uh, Nora Ephron, right? Oh, and uh, she wrote the um, the uh, uh, the expose about their relationship. Oh God, what is it called? Uh, Postcards from the Edge or something? No, I'm. For, um, it doesn't matter. As soon as you say it, I'll know it. But yeah. I can't think of it. I've forgotten. Um, do you? You're a teacher as well, yes. I well, I'm a volunteer ESL. I teach I I teach English as a second language on the side. You do, which to me is completely consistent with what I love about my day job. Like I love words and books and writing and language. Yeah, right. That's why I like being a reporter. We get to write and ask questions. I love teaching ESL because you watch other people acquire language. And these are mostly adult immigrants who really want to learn. It's not like a tutor. I used to tutor at a local high school. Half the time the kids wouldn't show up. Yeah. Or they'd show up and they want you to do their homework. With adults, they are there because they want to learn. Yeah. And I've found that no matter what country they're from or what their native language is, whatever their personality is shows through. So if they're funny and they only have 200 words in English, they find a way to be funny. Yeah, And yeah. I love watching that. Wow. If, uh, what books, if you had to teach a literature class somewhere, what books would you want to teach? What are your like favorite classics that you're that sort of have never left your heart? Well, because I recently reread uh, Great Expectations by Dickens, as I've just mentioned, I ha- would have to be that because that yeah. man has an incredible take on human nature. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, I remember re- you know rereading uh, when I was rereading uh, Great Expectations with Pip. I mean, they get into envy, mm. you know, and. Uh, and suddenly he's being treated to a nicer kind of life and he sort of loses his bearings. And this is written quite a long time ago, yeah. but it's so current and contemporary. Yeah. So yeah. it's got to be Dickens. He's yeah. great. Okay. Um, that would be – that comes to mind first. But, you know, if I had to write a syllabus, that would be really fun. And yeah. It would give you a really chance to review all the greats and decide who, who should be on that list. Yeah, what are worth teaching. Exactly. Uh, Sasha Pfeiffer, I cannot thank you enough for coming in and chatting with me. And uh, best of luck at the Academy Awards. Thank you. Thanks. Hope, this is really fun. Thank you guys sweep. Me. Yeah. Hope so. Thank you. Today's show is sponsored by Howl FM. It's like Netflix for podcasts. Howl Premium gives you exclusive access to the entire Earwolf catalog, including brand new Howl original dramatic series. This miniseries is called Fruit. It tells the story of an African-American professional football player who's struggling with his sexuality. It's brought to you. It's written and directed by Issa Rae. Uh, She also writes uh, and stars in the upcoming HBO comedy Insecure. The first episode debuted on February 3rd, and there's a new episode every Wednesday. And that comes to you exclusively with HAL Premium. You can also get up to 120 hours of original miniseries, audio documentaries, comedy albums, every episode of WTF with Mark Marin, all your favorite Earwolf and Wolf Pop shows, including Reading Aloud. You can get all the access, all the content for $4.99 a month. And if you want a free month trial, when you check out, type in the promo code READING. READING. So go to Howl, H-O-W-L dot F-M. Use the promo code READING for a free month trial of Howl Premium. Do it now. I really hope they sweep. Uh, At the time of this recording, the Oscar outcomes have yet to be revealed, but I hope they win them all. Uh, But screenplay in a walk. That's not going to be close. Uh, Director for Tom McCarthy, and and most importantly, of course, uh, best supporting actress for Rachel McAdams. I'll be cheering vigorously uh, from my Oscar party. Uh, I can't thank Sasha Pfeiffer enough for coming in and, and chatting with me. Thank you, Sasha, and... 
And uh, thank you for helping right a wrong. Uh, that, that's our show this week. Remember, book club approaches. So don't forget to head to your local bookstore and pick up Hemingwell's A Farewell to Arms and join me and my brother Rob and Chris Mowatel and Dan O'Brien and Shelby Farrow and Rachel Axler uh, as we honor the ultimate man's man, Ernest Hemingway. A man's man, but also a cat person, which is sort of like Sam. Because Sam's like a man's man. He's got cool tattoos. But he also has a cat who he adores. Oh, she's an angel. Oh, it says she? Yeah. But you named her Lars? Yeah, her name is Lars Ulrich. The show is called Reading Aloud. Help us out by subscribing to it on iTunes. And we'll see you next week. I love you, Nick. I love you, Sam. Oh, you hit me like a hurricane. What movies deserve to be in the all-time canon of great films? How about American Beauty? What struck me watching American Beauty is how much it felt like a period piece, even though it's only 16 years old. Forrest Gump. This movie gets painted as a conservative movie, but this movie just hates everybody. Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Amy Heckerling cares about teenagers and understands teenagers. Star Wars. C-3PO is terrible, and uh, he treats his best friend really poorly all the time. But why and is he his best friend? They're just two robots. This Are is- my blender and my toaster friend? Join the conversation on The Canon with new episodes every Monday. Listen on Wolf Pop Howl or your favorite podcast app. This episode is brought to you by the new comedy web series, Howard's Hot Roommate. What if your new roommate was the woman of your dreams? Would you be cool about it? Nah, you probably wouldn't. Neither is Howard. Would it be tough? Would you be cool? Would you be down to earth and approachable? Nah, you'd be a big weirdo like Howard is in this hilarious comedy series, Howard's Hot Roommate. It's starring Timothy Horner. Stephanie Maloof, and most importantly, it was created and written by Earwolf's very own John Cohen, who is hilarious in his own right. So check it out, all the six episodes of Howard's Misadventures now at meethoward.com. It's very easy. Meethoward.com. This has been a Wolf Pop production. Executive produced by Paul Shear, Adam Sachs, Chris Bannon, and Matt Gorley. For more information and content, visit wolfpop.com.